Okay, well, let's, uh, let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to sit under your word and we do pray tonight that you would speak to us clearly. Um, We pray that you would soften hearts and change lives and we pray that you would fill us with such joy and gladness as this psalm declares that we might come come to Easter rejoicing and that our joy may be visible to others and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so um, my text really from this psalm for tonight is verse 12. Uh, Sarah did read it beautifully but I'll start by reading it again. Verse 12 Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, in uh, 2006, the the publishers of the concise Oxford English Dictionary announced that the most frequently used noun in the English language is the word time. Uh, That perhaps shouldn't surprise us because we're living in a world, aren't we, where people are absolutely neurotic about it. That most of us think we don't have nearly enough time and that the little we do have passes far too quickly. Every parent knows just how it feels to attend those special events in our children's lives that mark the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. And uh, even as we pause to enjoy the moment with them, we can't help saying to ourselves, where did the time go? It all happened so fast. And we say it with a smile, but behind the smile, there is also a sense that the, the passage of time is just a little bit unsettling, because it is something outside our control. So, think for a moment of your cell phone. Some of you have got them out at the moment. Some of us uh, old fuddy-duddies can remember when cell phones first arrived on the scene more than 30 years ago. They were huge things, rather like a brick. And uh, we were absolutely delighted that we could, um, for the first time, move around and make phone calls while we were on the move. Uh, We liked that. Why did we like that? Well, it was the the ability to do two things at once and it felt like a sort of little victory over the tyranny of time. And uh, that's of course today why we have phones that not only do two things but 22 things at the same time always provided you know how to use them. But isn't it interesting that um, in spite of these marvellous devices Um, our generation is more anxious than ever that time is passing far more rapidly than we would wish. And that's one reason why Psalm 90 is such a precious text. It uses eight different words to describe time. 
And this beautiful psalm explains why we find the passage of time so unsettling. And with tremendous clarity, it points us to the only cure. It shows us how to number our days wisely. How does it do that? Well, one of the ways to think about the book of Psalms is not necessarily just as a book, but rather as a sanctuary. Because the Psalms are the special place in the Bible where the people of God go to meet their Heavenly Father. It is a safe place where we can bring to him whatever it is we might be dealing with. The good things, but perhaps especially the bad things. And I say especially the bad things because Psalm 90 is a lament. And there are more laments in the Psalms than any other category. Now we need to think about this because a lament is a song of distress. It's a cry to God from the heart that things are not going well. And in God's prayer book there are more of these songs of distress than anything else. What does that mean? Well, it means, I think, that one of the marks of a spiritually healthy Christian is that they are real with God. They don't pretend that things are fine when they're not. No, the spiritually healthy Christian brings all his or her burdens to God. And these songs of distress are precious because they help us to put our feelings into words at times when you and I might find that really rather difficult. But they don't stop there. They also help us see our situation in the context of God's goodness and his loving faithfulness. In other words, they they show us the way out of the darkness. But there's another reason why Christians love Psalm 90. The title, which of course is part of the original inspired text, tells us that the author was Moses. It's the only psalm that says that, which probably makes this the oldest psalm in the Bible. But there's more to it than antiquity. The point is, you see, that Moses knew God better than anybody else in the Old Testament. Elsewhere, the Bible says that the Lord spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So, the way that Moses prays here in the midst of real distress is a pattern that you and I can follow in our own times of spiritual crisis. Uh, The psalm is based on three breathtaking contrasts between man on the one hand and God on the other. And I want us to use these contrasts as our guide, as our way through the psalm tonight. Because I think with astonishing power and brightness, 
These contrasts take us right to the very heart of Easter, to the essential truth that so much modern Christianity seems to have forgotten. Um, Isaac Watts actually wrote a hymn based on Psalm 90, one of the best-loved psalms, uh, hymns in the English language, and we know it by its first line, which is, O God, our help in ages past. But when Isaac Watts composed it, he actually gave it a different title. Um, he called it, Man Frail, God Eternal. And so I think out of respect for him, we'll use that for the first of three, these three contrasts, which you'll find in verses 1 to 6. Now, in one of his uh, marvellous books, Eugene Peterson writes about a visit that he made to a monastery. And uh, one day, as he was being taken to lunch, he walked past a graveyard with an open grave, a freshly dug grave in it. And he asked one of the monks which member of the community had died. And uh, he was told, oh, nobody, that grave is for the next one. And the point was, you see, that every day, three times a day, as the monks went in for a meal, they were reminded of what we spend our waking hours trying to forget, that one of them will be next. And we don't like to think about that, but of course it's absolutely realistic, isn't it? And that's the kind of realism that we have in Psalm 90. It seems that Moses wrote this psalm during the 40 years of Israel's pilgrimage in the wilderness. Um, you'll remember that this was the time when God had decreed that that entire generation would never enter the promised land because of unbelief. And now, stuck in the wilderness, Moses watches as friends colleagues, loved ones, start to die, knowing, I think, that his own death will soon follow. Now, how do you deal with that? Well, Moses begins in the right place because he begins with God. Come with me to verse 1. Can you see verse 1? He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, you and I might not be in a physical wilderness like Moses, but as our culture moves further and further away from God, don't we often feel that actually we're living in a spiritual wilderness, a place where actually we don't really belong. I think most of us feel like that from time to time. But verses 1 and 2 are saying that whatever we might be going through, you and I have the most secure home possible. The everlasting God who has been there from eternity past and will be there to eternity future, who created the mountains and the whole earth, that great God 
cares enough to provide a home for us. And that home is nothing more and nothing less than himself. Now, isn't it interesting that he puts it that way? You know, I think we're all used to the evangelist when he comes to church. At the end of his talk, he'll stand there and he'll say, Ask Christ into your heart. Now, that's not a wrong thing, because at our conversion, Christ does come to live within us by his Spirit. But physically, Christ is at home with the Father in heaven. And more often than not, when the New Testament talks about being a Christian, it talks about us being in Christ and not the other way round. In fact, the normal picture in the New Testament is that as a Christian, I have two homes. I am in Christ and I am also in Cape Town. And that's kind of the picture that we've got in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Now, you see, we are meant to feel the security of that. Actually, we need to feel the absolute security of it. Why? Because we are so frail. And Moses goes on to highlight our frailty in three very striking images. The first is in verse 3. Verse 3. You, that is God, turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. Now you see, that is the destiny of all men everywhere. So whether you're the chief executive or the cleaner, or whether you live in Bishop's Court or Kailicha, we're all going the same way, back to dust. That's the reality, but most people refuse to face it. Um, I like reading biographies about Winston Churchill. He's a fascinating man. And several of the biographies about him reflect on the fact that great man as he was, nevertheless, his, his last years were really rather sad and lonely. Not long before he died, uh, the great Billy Graham went to see him and, uh, as you would expect, he faithfully shared the Gospel. Uh, Winston Churchill listened very politely but at the end of the conversation, he quite simply said, I'm too old for this. In other words, he was unable to face reality. The second uh, image that uh, portrays our frailty is in verse 5. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. Now, in the original, the words sweep away are the words that you would normally use to describe a river in flood that sweeps everything away in its path. We don't have that in South Africa at the moment, but uh, perhaps you've seen it on the news when a river's in flood in India or Pakistan or wherever it is, 
and it sweeps away everything in its path. Nothing can resist its power. It doesn't matter how fit we are or whether modern medicine gives us one or two more years. Sooner or later, a day is coming when we will be swept away and we can't escape it. And the third image in verses 5 and 6 adds a slightly different thought. He says, men are like the new grass of the morning, though in the morning it springs up new, by the evening it is dry and withered. Now, of course, the psalmist there is not thinking about the wonderfully irrigated turf at Newlands Cricket Ground. He's thinking of the grass in the desert scrub of the Middle East, which without rain lasts for just one day. And he's saying that by God's clock, that is how short your life is. Now I think when we put those three images together, it's a very unsettling picture. Most people don't know why it's unsettling, but every keen Bible reader does. And that's because of a famous passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. You don't need to turn to it. But uh, the writer there is describing the experience of the person who doesn't believe in God. And he says this, quote, What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden that God has laid on men. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. End quote. Now friends, that is a a poetic way of saying that uh, when the doctor writes on the death certificate death by natural causes strictly speaking that's a mistake the truth is that you and I are made in the image of the God who is eternal death is therefore not natural it's an intruder we were not created for death So why do we die? Why are we so haunted by the passing of time? Well, Psalm 90. Look at the second contrast between man and God. If the first contrast is man frail, God eternal, the second contrast is man sinful, God eternal angry verses 7 to 11 now I think we all know that in the letter to the Romans Paul says that the wickedness of man is most clearly seen in the way that man suppresses the truth that God has given to us and history confirms that every generation has found certain things that God has said about himself in his word that are in conflict with what people want to believe. And so they make a quick calculation and they sweep what God has said 
under the carpet. But what God reveals about himself in this psalm is, I suggest, of the utmost importance. It is the truth about the anger of God. Now, unfortunately, since the middle of the last century, the church in general has been trying to cover up what the Bible says about the anger of God with disastrous results. For a start, um, people in the West no longer fear God. That's the first result. If they think of God at all, they've got him in the same bracket in their minds as Father Christmas. You know, he's someone that they can call on for special favours when the need arises. But otherwise, God can be safely ignored. How very different the picture in this psalm. Remember, will you, that Moses knew God better than anybody else in the Old Testament. What did Moses think? I mean, when Moses thought about God, uh, was he bored? Was he trying to stifle a yawn? Look at verse 7. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. I think it's really rather amazing that we find right here in this psalm the very heart of the human problem. That our sin provokes the righteous anger of Almighty God and the result <coughs> is a short life that ends in death. And yet, you know, I do believe that deep down inside even the most hardened cynic has a kind of sense within him that his whole life, even his secret sins, are an open book to God. Peter Cook was one of the more popular comedians of the 20th century. But he was a lifelong atheist. And then one night he uh, suffered a stomach hemorrhage which uh, turned out to be fatal. And uh, as he was wheeled out of his house to the ambulance, never to return, he admitted to his wife that he was absolutely terrified. Well, of course he was, because who wouldn't be if you know that you've got to stand before Almighty God on your own merits? But because so many churches have been denying the anger of God for so long, because it's bad for business, sin has become socially acceptable and as a direct result of that in the minds of many people the cross is no longer necessary I should say that kind of thinking is not new uh, on the reverse of the handout I've given you a quotation from Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones who wasn't only a brilliant preacher he was also a terrific scholar and talking about the wrath of God he says this here is a doctrine that the natural man abominates. 
He feels that it is insulting to him. He has always been like this. Go back again and read the histories and you will find in all periods of spiritual deadness and decline that people did not believe in sin in that way. They did not believe in the wrath of God. And I suppose there are no two things in connection with the Christian faith that are so abominated today as the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the wrath of God. Now friends, can I suggest that that is precisely where we are in Cape Town in 2018? By and large, men and women don't believe in God's wrath. And for that reason, they can't possibly understand the cross. But the denial of the wrath of God has a third very unhappy consequence in that it's driven some of our thoughtful friends, perhaps friends who are seeking, it's driven them to unbelief. They might have been starting to think about Christian things, but then some catastrophe comes along. It might be a devastating natural disaster, uh, or a terrorist attack, or it might be something slightly closer to home. Uh, maybe a loved one struck down with some mortal disease. Now you see, they've heard from us that God is love and that God is powerful. And so you see, they say to us, if God is love, why doesn't he do something about it? It must be because he's not powerful enough. And if he is powerful enough, why doesn't he intervene? It must be because he doesn't care. And they need to know from Scripture that yes, God is loving and he is powerful, but he also acts in judgment on a world that has turned its back on him. And you see, it's only when we tell them that that sorrows and disasters become intelligible. And it's uh, only then that they can begin to understand why the world is as broken and messed up as it is. But we mustn't stop there. Uh, God is angry. Sin is the cause. Death is certain. They, I mean, these are realities. And we've got to face them. But is there a cure? Is there a way out of the darkness? Well, praise God, there is. Because the third contrast is man prayerful, God gracious, in verses 12 to 17. It's a marvellous section, actually. Uh, it contains six bold requests, one in each verse. And uh, this is your homework for Holy Week. Uh, I want to suggest that at the beginning of each day, you pray one of those requests because they are all full of hope and confidence. And the confidence in all six requests is motivated by just one word. You'll find it in verse 14. Moses prays, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Now that phrase, unfailing love, is just one word in the original. 
In Hebrew it is the word hesed. And hesed means God's faithful love in action. That's what it means. The word appears 125 times in the Psalms and in every single case it's talking about God pursuing his people with love and mercy. You see, the amazing thought behind the word is that in spite of our sin, that we don't pursue God, no, no, he actually pursues us. So when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, the person of the Lord Jesus, my friends, that was hesed. That was God's faithful love in action. And that is the marvellous truth that motivates each of these six petitions. Now, we haven't got time to look at each one in detail, but let me draw your attention to just three features that will help us make sense of the rest. First, have a look at verse 12. As I said at the beginning, I think verse 12 is really the key verse in the psalm. It says, Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean uh, take your age tonight and subtract it from 70 or 80, and that'll tell you how many years you've got left. Now, for me, that's not very many. But it's not saying that. It's saying, help us to be the kind of people who understand why our lives are so very short and help us to respond with wisdom by trusting in your hesed, in your unfailing love. And for anybody who's not a Christian, verse 12 would be a terrific prayer for you this week. Because it's only when we see life as it really is, when we see ourselves as we really are, sinners deserving wrath, that we're ever going to pray like that. And if Psalm 90 does that for somebody tonight, well, they can make verse 12 their prayer. Second, although Moses is, is only too aware of the wrath of God, in verse 13, he has no hesitation in asking God to relent. Fascinating word. What does it mean? It means that he's asking God to turn away his anger. That's what it means. Now, we live this side of the cross and we know that is precisely what God has done. Because at the cross... God turned his anger away from us and he directed it instead onto himself in the person of the Lord Jesus. And that changes everything, doesn't it? There's a place in one of Paul's letters where he writes, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, every Christian knows that that is true for them because God has relented. 
He has turned his wrath away from us and it is no longer hanging over us. Can I hear an amen? Thank you. And then lastly, in the second half of verse 14, I want you to notice the difference that God's faithful love makes in the life of a believer. Moses says, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, back in verse 10, life under the wrath of God was full of trouble and sorrow but under the protection of God's unfailing love life is completely different a great change has taken place now life's troubles still come and go but over it all there is a kind of profound unshakable joy and gladness all our days and I want to say to you that that is standard authentic Christian experience and amazingly here it is in Psalm 90 I think one of the loveliest descriptions of this change is written by John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress hands up those who've read Pilgrim's Progress yes good Well, it's a great book. It's a lovely book to read. If you haven't read it, read it this Easter. It's a lovely book to read and there's some nice uh, translations in modern English. The main character is a man called Christian and uh, in the story he's carrying his sin as a tremendous burden on his back, rather like um, carrying a sayer, I suppose. It's not that a sayer's a burden, of course, but uh, there is a visual illustration of the point that I'm making. And uh, Christian has heard from a man called Evangelist that um, unless he's able to get rid of all his sin, he will certainly face the wrath of God. Listen to what happens. Christian ran until he came to a place somewhat elevated. Upon that place stood a cross, and below at the bottom was a tomb. I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden came loose from his shoulders and fell off his back. It began to tumble and continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the tomb and I saw it no more. Then Christian was glad and relieved and he said with a joyful heart, he has given me rest from sorrow and has given me life through his death. And then he stood a little while to look and wonder for he was very surprised that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden in such a way he looked therefore and looked again and then he began to weep let's just have a moment of quiet and uh, then we'll do something together.
Let's stand and let's read from verse 12 to the end of the psalm. These are the six petitions, uh, one for you to pray at the beginning of each day for the next six days. Let's say this together. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. What are we doing now? Are we hanging out? Or um, what are we doing? Having tea? Good. Let's have tea then. You want me to pray? Okay, I can do that. What well, brain brain do you pray? You pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your grace this evening. 